0: Have you ever received one of those scam letters, maybe came as a fax, one of those inheritance scams? Shows up with fancy letterhead, like it's from a real law firm, and in fact, if you Google it, you probably find a law firm with that name and that address. Kind of scary how realistic it can come across. And it says something like, somebody you maybe haven't ever met before, but who is a distant relative of yours, recently died. And they left like $10.8 million in a bank account in Spain. And I'm their lawyer. And it's my job to track down the nearest living relative. And that's you. Anybody ever got one of those? Greg has received two of those now. So uh, somebody thinks he's a hot target for inheritance scams. Talk to him about that sometime. I have not been so fortunate. But just imagine for a minute if you were to receive a notification like that and it was true. How would your life change, I mean, basically, in an instant, if you suddenly found out that you were inheriting a, a multi-million dollar estate? It turns out that there was a woman in Argentina who worked as a maid and through DNA evidence found that she was actually the daughter of a multi-millionaire and she inherited $40 million, quit her job as a maid and inherited that estate. How would your life change instantly if you were to find out that you were an error like that. Scripture reveals truths to us that, one, we would not even know if they weren't revealed to us in Scripture, and, and two, uh, we would not even dare to believe some of these things if they did not come to us from God. They, they seem too good to be true. And Romans eight fourteen through 17 is one of those passages. If the truths contained here were not revealed to us by the Spirit of God through the Word of God, they would just be unbelievable, unimaginable, too good to be true. But God's Word is true, and it contains news better than that, better than inheriting millions of dollars, news that should change the rest of your life. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans verses 14 through 17 and if you're physically able I want to invite you to stand with me out of our regard our reverence for God's word his word is true and authoritative and without blemish or flaw and so we read it like no other book Romans 8 14 through 17 for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. We trust it. We believe it. Help us in our unbelief. When we doubt you, when we question you, when we forget what you have said to us, may this word dwell richly in us, comforting us and assuring us and producing in us joyful confidence in the face of the evils that surround us. Be exalted in us, your children, we pray. Our Father, amen. You may be seated. The central truth in this text is that you, If you are trusting in, if you are relying on Jesus Christ alone, then you are a child of God. Verse 14 says, these are the sons of God. Verse 15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Verse 16, we are children of God. Verse 17, if we are children, then we are heirs of God. We are children of God. We are sons of God. We are heirs of God. In just a few sentences, Paul asserts and reasserts the fact of this glorious reality over and over and over again. We are children of God. But the point of the passage goes deeper than the mere fact of sonship. The mere status of children. The aim here is to assure you of this reality, to convince you that it's true, and when you are assured that this is true about you, that God is your father, that you are his son or his daughter, then you will be empowered to live in the fullness of that, all that that means, all the rights and all of the riches and all of the benefits and the blessings that belong to you as a child of God. Just like coming into a multi-million dollar inheritance would give you access to new resources and unlock new opportunities for you, your status as a child of God gives you access to resources beyond your ability to comprehend, resources that make it possible for you to live a life that is fearless and free in a world that is fallen and marked by sin and death. Look at verse 15 where Paul says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So there's a a negative statement and a positive statement to give us more clarity about what exactly Paul's talking about. You did not receive the spirit of slavery leading into fear. You did receive the spirit of adoption as sons. It's interesting that sonship is contrasted here with slavery and fear. Those are the two alternatives, and so here's the claim of Romans eight. 14 through 17. You will either live a fatherless life marked by fear, vulnerable to enslavement, or you will live a fearless life because God is your father. You will either live a fatherless life, spiritually speaking, or you will live a fearless life. There's a, a popular sentiment, feel good idea that everybody's a child of God. All humanity, we are all God's children because we're all made by God. But Scripture is clear that not all people are children of God. Ephesians two three says that when we were living in our sin, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the condition of all humanity, children of Wrath, 2 Peter 2.14, speaks of accursed children. Matthew 13.38, Jesus speaks of sons of the evil one. Those who live in sin and rebellion against God, they are in bondage. Slavery to sin, captivity. And slavery to sin always comes with fear. Rightly so. Fear of God's judgment, fear of wrath, fear of death, which is... The wages that sin pays out. So those who are sons of God, on the other hand, are free and fearless. The forgiveness of sins that's available to you in Jesus, as we've been seeing throughout the book of Romans. The forgiveness of sins and the gift of a clean conscience and the reality of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. That generates courage. Courage. If, if there's no condemnation for you, there's no threat of separation from God, the very last verse of Romans 8, then there is no fear. And if there's no fear, then you're fearless. You have nothing to fear. It's significant that slavery and fear always go together. When you are enslaved to sin, then you're rightly afraid of the consequences. And when you are afraid of the judgment that you deserve, you're easily enslaved To anyone and everything, because those with guilty consciences are easily manipulated, easily coerced, easily blackmailed because that guilt is just hanging over you like a cloud. I think that's how most of our world lives. Guilty consciences enslave people to all kinds of miserable masters. But those whose sins are forgiven are completely free because they're sons. And they're daughters of God. And they can't be blackmailed. They can't be coerced. They can't be owned by anyone else. And so this text is meant to produce that in you. The fearlessness of the sons of God. And it does that in three steps. Assurance, inheritance, and endurance. First, it assures you, you are a child of God. And then it reminds you of your inheritance as a child of God. And then it calls you to endure suffering As a child of God, assurance, inheritance, endurance. First, let's look at assurance. Verses 14 through 16, those three verses are all aimed at just establishing your certainty, your confidence, your full assurance that you are a child of God. Where does that come from? Well, according to this text, it comes from the discernible work of the Holy Spirit within you, which according to this text, is going to be evident in at least two ways. It's going to be evident in your life externally, and it's also going to be present in your life internally. You're going to notice the work of the Spirit in you. First, externally, the sons of God are identified by increasing obedience to God. That's a mark of sonship. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. That's like saying, all the trees that produce apples these are the apple trees. Or all of the animals that have backbones, these are the vertebrates. I was just singling out for you, this is the defining mark. This is the distinguishing feature. This is how you can tell who are the sons of God. All those who are led by the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. So what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? And how do you know if you are being led by the Spirit of God. Well, depending on your background, you might associate a a term like Spirit-led with all things spontaneous and unplanned and emotional and kind of a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants way. We're just Spirit-led. We don't have a plan. We're just going with the flow. That's how some people think of Spirit-led. Or you might think about coincidences and signs that you interpret to be some confirmation, some, some guidance from God. So some people, that's where their mind goes. Spirit-led means God is giving me like turn-by-turn navigation through all the decisions I'm making in life. And I'm looking for like billboards and signs on sides of buses and things. Well How is the Spirit leading me? But when Paul speaks of being Spirit-led here in Romans 8, he uses the same language in Galatians 5. And in those two places, when he talks about being led by the Spirit, he's talking about walking in obedience to God. The clear commands of God in Scripture. He's talking about putting sin to death. Putting to death what's earthly in you. He's talking about turning away from the works of the flesh, which are evident sexual immorality and dissension and envy and greed and drunkenness and bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Simple things like love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self control. That's what it looks like to be led by the Spirit of God. He just said the verse right before this one was verse 13. Let's read those two together 13 and 14. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? It means that you are killing sin by the Spirit. If By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. That's what the Spirit of God is going to lead you into. He's the one who leads you out of sin and into righteousness in your actual life. We're talking about sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus in our actual lives. Okay, justification, God has made a once for all declaration about you legally that you are righteous, not because of anything you do, but because of Jesus and you're united to him and his death counts as your death and his righteousness counts as your righteousness and now, legally counted righteous in Jesus, the spirit of God is going to lead you into actually living a different way, out of sin and into righteousness, That's what it means to be led by the Spirit, to to walk according to the Spirit, Romans 8.4, to live according to the Spirit, to set the mind on the things of the Spirit, Romans 8.5. So to be led by the Spirit then is not a matter of personal turn-by-turn guidance through big decisions like where should I go to college and who should I marry and what job should I take and what house should I buy. To be led by the Spirit is to be governed by the Spirit. He's ruling in your life. He's leading you to obey God by faith. As someone has said, it's, it's not directional, right versus left. It's, it's moral, right versus wrong. That's how the Spirit of God is leading you. So how does the Spirit of God lead? Well, He is always going to lead you then, not just by whims and, and fancies and feelings, but according to the Word of God. That's what Jesus said about the ministry of the Spirit, John fourteen twenty six. the Helper, the Holy Spirit, Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So so the work of the Spirit has to do with the Word of God and bringing it to remembrance and impressing that upon you. John 16, 13, Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, where do we find truth? Revealed in God's Word. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will guide you. He will lead you. To be led by the Spirit, then it's not a frustrating mystery like wandering through a dark corn maze in October with no flashlight and no map and just bumping into corn stalks. You're not wandering around in the dark. You're being led by the Spirit into more illumination, more light that God's Word shines on your life. It it means the Spirit's going to bring conviction about that temper, that reaction, The Spirit of God is going to convict you of that. Your impatience, your lustful thoughts, your selfishness, your gossip, the Spirit of God is going to lead you to turn away from those things in repentance and to grow in holiness. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. And those who are led by the Spirit then, these are the sons of God and they look like God. They bear a family resemblance because the Spirit of God is leading them. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 50, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that's my brother and sister and mother. W- what's the family feature that, all, that we all share in common? Doing the will of God. That's the distinguishing mark. So the, the prominent family feature then is this discernible obedience to the Father. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke six thirty-five and 36. How the the family resemblance comes out, love your enemies and do good and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. If you love your enemies and you do good to them, you look like the father because he is unbelievably generous to people who hate him and you'll look like him. Be merciful, verse 36, even as your father is merciful, You, you will look like him. That's what the Spirit of God is going to lead you into. Notice that the language here, though, is it's passive. Those who are led by the Spirit. So who's doing the leading? The Spirit of God. The, the emphasis is on the Spirit's work, the Spirit's initiative in your life. This assurance, then, that you are a child of God, observable in your increasing obedience to the Father, it doesn't come from looking at your work. It comes from looking at the work of the Spirit in you, which you can notice in the change that happens in your life. But what you're seeing is not what started with you and originated in your own effort and your own willpower. What you're seeing is that the Spirit of God started something in you, and He's working it in you, and you know because Scripture tells you He's going to bring that to completion. The Spirit is at work in you. Romans 8.14 does not say, those who have achieved sinless perfection, these are the sons of God. But I know that that's how some of you are going to be tempted to hear this. So I want to caution you. Don't do that. If you do that, if you take this to me, and I don't know if I'm a child of God, then there's still some sin in my life that I can think of, then you're going to turn a passage that's meant to assure you you are a child of God into some cause for days-long sessions of introspection and, oh, no, I'm not sinless enough. I'm not obedient enough. Just don't overcomplicate it. Does the Spirit of God convict you of sin? And when He does do you turn and repent your sin and turn to Jesus then the spirit of god is leading you are the promises of god precious to you are the warnings of god in his word do they sober you do the commands of god do you see them as good and true and right and beautiful then the spirit of god is leading you and you can be sure you are a child of god By faith in Jesus. So that's external assurance. But then internally, the Spirit of God assures you you're a child of God by causing you to experience, to feel, to become aware at the core of your being that the Father loves you. He causes you personally to know this is not just some generic Love that the Father has. He loves me. I am his child. Look at verses 15 through 16 again. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So not only is the Spirit then leading you into outwardly observable obedience, but he's bearing witness. He's testifying. He's confirming. He is attesting to your spirit inside of you. You are a child of God. In Romans 8, 9 through 11, just a few verses back, we heard a couple of weeks ago, the, the Spirit of God is referred to alternately as the Spirit of God, the Father, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Son, because He's both. He's the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son. And so this Spirit of God has existed forever in community between the Father and the Son. All the love and affection that exists between the Father and the Son. All of the honor that exists, all of the delight that exists in that relationship, that's in the Spirit. And so when Scripture says, God has given you, you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons, this is not some new work the Spirit takes on. He just extends to you now the very Exist the very relationship and community that exists between the Father and the Son, and now you're wrapped up into that familial bond between God the Father and God the Son by God the Spirit. That's mind blowing that God would involve us in that most intimate of relationships. And as the Spirit makes you aware that God is your Father, and He confirms to your heart, I'm His child. He's my father. He loves me. The, the spirit then is the one prompting you to cry out to God in this way Abba, Father. I love that Paul says, We cry, Abba, Father. Not just we say or we recite or no, we cry. That's what children do. And the cry of a child can mean so many things. It just, it's the littlest children, it's all they have. And so it's, Cries of joy and cries of agony and cries of need. and we, we cry out to the Father. So that word alone just expresses that the relationship you now have with God is one of longing and desire and urgency and need and relationship. It's not stuffy and formal. It's personal and it's affectionate. And what's the significance of that word Abba? Maybe you've heard it taught that you could use that word, you could translate it to English as daddy, That's not quite right. Abba, Father, is word for word what Jesus cries out to the Father when he's praying in the garden before he goes to the cross to die in Mark 14, 36. Abba, Father. So so Paul has that in mind. He's just quoting Jesus. And what he means is you now have the right to relate to God the Father the way that Jesus did, to address him the way that Jesus did, The relationship the Son of God has with the Father, that's your relationship with God, your Father. So the Spirit provides this corroborating evidence that you're a child of God. He leads you to obey the Father, and He assures your soul internally. The Father loves you. Second, inheritance. After establishing the reality of your status as as sons and daughters of God, the text moves into this unbelievable implication, verses 16 through 17. We are children of God, and... If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is logically connected to your status as an adopted child of God. Because you're a child, then you are an heir. But it goes beyond that. It it, it would be possible technically to be a child and not an heir, right? Maybe you're not the firstborn and the firstborn is inheriting everything. Maybe you've been, for some reason, disinherited. You could be a child and not an heir. So this is a a step up from merely being a child. You are an heir of God. What on earth does that mean? An heir of God? It means that everything God has promised belongs to you. Everything God has promised belongs to you. In the Old Testament, the inheritance of God's people, that word inheritance is used Hundreds of times. The inheritance of God's people most frequently referred to the land of Canaan that God had promised that he would give to Israel as their possession. And there are hundreds of references. Let me just show you one from 1 Chronicles 16. I think it's a good summary. Verses 15 through 18. Remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute. To Israel as an everlasting covenant. There's a lot of repetition of this is fixed and it's forever. Saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. And that theme is, is so strong through the 37th Psalm, verse 9, verse 11, verse 22, verse 29, verse 34. This hope expressed. The righteous will inherit the land. The meek will inherit the land. Jesus quotes that in Matthew 5 5. Look at verse 29 from Psalm 37. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. So, hand in hand with the promise of land is the promise of eternal life. Because you don't dwell in the land forever unless you live and never die. That's the inheritance that God promised. To his people, And with the coming of Jesus, that promise is not scrapped like, well, you know, land of Canaan, that was, that was nice, but never mind that. We'll just turn it all into imaginary pie in the sky, by and by, when you die kind of promises. No, that, that promise was just expanded, blown up in massive ways. Paul says in Romans 4.13 regarding Abraham, for the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be, listen to this, Heir of the world, heir of the world, did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. So the, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, then Paul's expanding this to say it's not just limited to Israel in the land of Canaan, it's going to be nothing less than inheriting the world. Elsewhere, Paul speaks of inheriting the kingdom of God and being heirs of eternal life, which goes together because you have to live Forever to enjoy the fullness of what God has promised to you. So uh, what I want you to see is just a a big, massive bundle of all the riches and all the rights and all the blessings and all the benefits that it means to belong to God, to have Him as your Father. Paul says in verse 17, we are fellow heirs with Christ. Just like an inheritance scam that if you ever get a fax or an email or a letter like that should sound too good to be true, it should sound too good to be true to call rebellious sinners like us heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. How could that be? That that line right there from Paul that, that explains how, how sinners can become heirs of God. Only because we are fellow heirs with Christ. Let me just try to sketch briefly a back story, the backstory, the, the theology of adoption as sons. Genesis 1: God created man in his own image after his own likeness. And we know from Genesis 5, 3, when Adam fathered a son, Seth, the language there is Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. So the language of image and likeness, it implies God created Adam to represent him, God, the way that a son represents a father. And in that sense, then, we can say Adam was the first son of God. In fact, Luke chapter 3 calls Adam the son of God. And as a son, Adam was commissioned by God to rule and to reign on earth, to represent God, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with the image of God, with worshipers made in the image of God. But as we know, Adam rebelled against God and he plunged all of humanity in this state of fatherlessness. But thousands of years later, God redeemed a nation, Israel, took them out of slavery in Egypt, Saying these words, Exodus 4.22, You shall say to Pharaoh, God told Moses, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So Israel as a nation was meant to be the firstborn son of God and inherit the land. Just like Adam, Israel rebelled. Listen to Deuteronomy 32, 5 through 6. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? But They rebelled against him. They rejected him. And yet, God was not done. He was not done with his purpose to have his world ruled by his son in his image. And he made a way then for wicked sons of Adam to become righteous sons of God And he did that by sending his own eternal son, his only begotten son, Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1.4 about the sonship of God. He, Jesus, was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. When? By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus was always the son of God, but something happened at his resurrection from the dead The beginning of the fulfillment of all the purposes of God to have a son in his image on earth, fully human, ruling and reigning as God's appointed king, to have a people for his own possession. That began at Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That is his inauguration as the ruling and reigning better son of Adam, the true son of God. In several places in the New Testament, then, Jesus is called the firstborn. Colossians 1.15, he's the firstborn of all creation. Romans 8.29, later in this chapter, he's the firstborn among many brothers. Colossians 1.18 and Revelation 1.5 call him the firstborn from the dead. And that status as firstborn means that Jesus has... Prominence and honor and authority. There was a promise to the Messiah way back in Psalm uh, 89, 27, and it's quoted in Revelation 1, 5. It goes like this, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That's Jesus, the firstborn. The rightful heir, the true and better Adam, appointed to represent God and rule and reign on earth. He's the one to whom this promise from Psalm 2 is fulfilled. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. I will give you the world, my son. That's God's purpose fulfilled in Jesus. And Paul, in Acts 13, he's preaching a sermon He quotes Psalm 2 and he says, when did God say to Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you? When he rose from the dead. That's the inauguration of Jesus as the king of the world. And then Paul calls you a fellow heir with him. If you're trusting in Jesus, you're united to him. His death counts as your death. His life and his righteousness and his inheritance, he shares it with you what a generous elder brother what a generous king lastly endurance this is this is how it is then that the sons of god are fearless and free the, the assurance that you're a child of god the guarantee of an inheritance beyond what you can fathom secured for you by christ that produces fearless Endurance in the children of God. Verse 17, we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Since you're united to Jesus in order to share in his inheritance, you can also expect to share in his suffering. There's a condition in this verse. If we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. If you don't, if you don't endure when suffering comes, you you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that requires clarification. First, suffering is not, don't, don't misread this, it is not a meritorious work you do to earn an inheritance. If you suffer enough, God will see that and he will pay you what you deserve, what you earned through your suffering. That is not what this is saying. If you had to earn it, it would not be an inheritance Union with Christ, by faith, is the only way to share in his glory. But union with Christ means union with Christ. And so you can expect to fully identify with him in everything. In his suffering and then in his glory. Jesus told his own disciples in John 15, 20, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So this should not come as a surprise. What Jesus reveals to us is that the path to glory lies through suffering. No way to get to resurrection except to die first. Death, then resurrection. Suffering, then glory. This is why Paul could encourage disciples as he planted churches to persevere in the faith by saying things like, Acts 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Or Paul could say about his own personal greatest longing, greatest ambition and desire in life, Philippians 3, 10 through 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's what I want. And that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Resurrection after death in everything union with Christ. The other clarification about this is this is not a command to go find suffering. The early church, when martyrdom was rising, they they were quick to point that out to people and say, hey, you don't need to go be a voluntary martyr. Like to run out, if they're looking for Christians, you don't have to run in the street and say, I'm right here, kill me. Don't don't do that. This doesn't mean you, you might be an heir of God if you can go out and find enough ways to suffer for God. You know, just cultivate this martyr complex and go look for ways to suffer so you can secure your place in heaven. That is not what Paul is saying here. What he's dealing with, he's aiming to secure your endurance through hard things, through suffering, by assuring you, you are a child of God, you have a glorious inheritance, it belongs to you. And when you do encounter suffering, don't let that shake your confidence. See, there's a possible disconnect here where you're thinking, I'm a son or daughter of God. I have this glorious inheritance. I have this exalted status. I'm going to share with Christ the heir of the world. And then you look around at life in a fallen world and you suffer persecution and opposition and you're ostracized or you endure physical pain and you start thinking, this doesn't look like what I'm expecting as an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. What is this? And that could cause discouragement and disillusionment and doubt to sink in in your own heart Causing you to question, am I really a child of God? Does the Father really love me? In hard things, that's where people's minds tend to go. Does he really love me? Is he really treating me in a wise way as a good father? And Paul's saying, it shouldn't surprise you. You're united to Christ. You will share in his sufferings and then in his glory. So keep your eyes fixed on Christ in glory. And you will endure. Whatever you suffer. For the children of God, then suffering simply confirms our union with Christ, and it intensifies our longing for glory. So are you living a fatherless life as an orphan, vulnerable, enslaved to sin, plagued by fear, plagued by a guilty conscience? Or are you living a fearless life as a Son, a daughter of God. If you're trusting Christ, are, are you following the Spirit as He leads you in trusting and dependent obedience to God? Are you, are you listening to the Spirit as He's testifying to you that the Father loves you, that He gave His Son for you? As a believer, as a son of God, there, there's remaining sin. So follow the Spirit as He leads you to put that to death. And if there's any fear that you, you, you're aware of, you've just been plagued lately by some anxiety, some concern, God means for you to be fearless. He has not given you a spirit of fear. We, we are living in a time of upheaval. That, that's obvious, right? There's uncertainty in these days on almost every level. Socially, politically, culturally, economically, Sexually, people can't even figure things out, boys and girls. It was just a crazy upheaval in every way. Should any of that cause you to fear? Not if you're an heir of God. You read Psalm 37. Go, go read that today. Those promises are true in Jesus, and you're united to Jesus by faith. The righteous will inherit the earth and dwell on it forever. And God will be your king. And you will belong to him. How, how, do you, how do you know you will live on earth forever with God? Because the firstborn already rose from the dead on this earth. And as he is, so shall we be. Let's pray. Jesus, we honor you. You're our great high priest. You are the true king. You are the better Adam. You are our elder brother, the firstborn. And we delight. We rejoice. We exult in your victory over death and sin. And we find such comfort and security in you. You have made us sons of God with you. Father, thank you. Thank you that you would give your son. Thank you that you would give your son and your spirit to now dwell in us. Thank you that you would give us your son and your spirit and your promises. You give and you give and you give and you never stop giving. And we are overwhelmed with gratitude to you. We love you. And we pray that you would produce in us the joy and the freedom, and the courage that characterizes your sons and daughters in Jesus' name. Amen.